You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents... You can enjoy extended commercial-free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk, all one word, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-T-A-L-K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice. iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, visit monstertalk.org forward slash support, where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations. This episode includes coverage of suicide. Self-harm is a serious problem, and one of the best things you can do if you're struggling with such thoughts is to reach out and talk to someone. In the United States, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline can be reached by dialing 988. If you're struggling, please seek help. We care about our listeners and want you to be around for many years to hear stories about monsters, science facts, and, of course, terrible puns. Thanks. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Welcome to part two of our two-part coverage of the Philadelphia Experiment. In part one, guest David Halperin talked to us about three men whose lives became entwined with this story through strange correspondences in the 1950s. Morris K. Jessup was the author of The Case for the UFOs, a sprawling book 
that looks at his pioneering belief that much of the weird things that happen in the world today could be attributed to UFOs, and the pilots of these crafts are not aliens from other star systems, but rather that they might be our ancestors from the time of Atlantis, who fled the surface of the planet 10 to 12,000 years ago and have been out there interfering and watching things ever since. Now, if that sounds like a mashup of Charles Ford, Eric Von Däniken, and Graham Hancock, well, you're not wrong. But remember, Jessup predates Von Däniken by more than a decade, and Hancock by four decades. So he suggests that everything from the vanishing crew of the Mary Celeste to the 1855 case of the Devil's Footprints in Devon were brought to us by UFO occupants. Then we have Gray Barker, the UFO enthusiast and publisher whose Saucerian books kept a lot of fringe writers in print. Tall, mischievous, and hiding secrets of his own, Barker was the man who made the men in black famous through his book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And finally, we have the real source of the Philadelphia Experiment, Carl Allen, a.k.a. Carlos Allende. He took a copy of Jessup's book and annotated it with wild revelations in three different and distinctive voices and mailed that to the Office of Naval Intelligence. He also corresponded with Barker and Jessup. Allende, or Allen, he reminds me of a creation of comedian Jerry Clower, who would tell stories about a man named Eugene Ledbetter, who was so committed to making stuff up that he'd rather climb a tree to shout a lie when he could just stand on the ground and tell the truth. Now, this colorful trio are responsible for the legend of the Philadelphia Experiment. And it's just a legend. It's a lie. It's a hoax. It's a make up Even venerable ufologist Jacques Vallée has written about this story as a clear example of a hoax and how to use it as a template for spotting other hoaxes. I'll put a link to that fascinating document in the show notes. Okay, you're all caught up now. If you missed part one, I do recommend you go check it out. But I think that this is enough background material that we can drop back into our interview and pick up where we left off with David Halperin. Monster Dog. So now we're back for part two of our interview with David Halperin, uh, who is joining us to continue the exciting true story of what really is behind the Philadelphia experiment. This is a cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're now in 1957, and Jessup is contacted by the Office of Naval Research in Washington, D.C. They want him to come and have a look at a package they received the previous year. That is 1956, about the same time that Jessup was was exchanging his letters with Carlos Allende. And when Jessup came to Washington, they showed him a paperback copy of his book. It had been mailed to them in an envelope with Happy Easter scrawled on the outside the the previous year. And in it was his book, but annotated in what looked like three different handwritings with three different colors inks, copiously annotated, as if three people were debating back and forth, passing it back and forth among them, and saying, oops, here he he hit on the truth. And no, this is all bullshit. He got this all wrong. Okay? And the whole book is filled with their commentary 
on the case for the UFO, only one of the three men is named, that he's called Jemi, J-E-M-I, and also my twin. And it's very hard to uh, not to think that there's a link between Gemini and Gemini. Okay, the other two are anonymous, and in the literature on the subject, they're generally referred to as Mr. A and Mr. B. And in their annotations, they spin out this mythology of Earth's ancient past, in which the the the, the invisibility experiment is mentioned, but it occupies a rather small place, and the bulk of the uh, the, the bulk of the space is devoted to describing two races of, I don't think they, they call them space beings because they're not from space, but they're non-human denizens of the earth, one called LMs and the other called SMs, who warred against each other using asteroids as their weapons. Wow. And... The first wave of civilization was destroyed in these wars. Now, the writers speak of themselves as gypsies. And one of them says, if the history of the great war of the ancients were ever recorded, it would cause man to stand in awe or disbelieve that such huge satellitic masses were ever deliberately tossed through this atmosphere in an attempt to demolish all of the little men great work. Fortunately for mankind's ego, only a gypsy will tell another of that catastrophe, and we are a discredited people ages ago. Ha! Yet man wonders where we, in quotation marks, come from, and I do not believe they will ever know. So now the gypsies have replaced the pygmies as the liminal beings between ordinary humans and this mythological world. And the three annotators claim to be gypsies. This is out of order. I really shouldn't ask this question here. We've talked before on Monster Talk about the very peculiar history of Ray Palmer and Richard Shaver and the Shaver Mysteries and the way that the two of them worked together. Shaver, who was almost certainly mentally ill, generating tons of content, and Palmer, who was deeply into esoteric uh, literature, rewriting Shaver's work to produce this incredible narrative of the these evil and good forces working from within a hollow earth. I can't help but see gigantic parallels here. Uh, is, yeah. is, is, is that similar? And I, we haven't gotten to how Barker's involved with all this, but it feels like Barker mm -hmm. takes on that sort of uh, Ray Palmer role uh, and I, I don't want to let that slip by. So if you, you don't have to answer it here if it narratively makes more sense to bring that in. But I, I just, that, wow, that seems familiar. Let me, I'll, I'll finish act two quickly 
And Act Three begins. Enter Gray Barker. Okay, cool. What? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, that Act Two. Jessup goes. Jessup comes to the office of the Office of Naval Research in Washington. Sees the book. Recognizes the hand. One of the handwritings ah. as that of Carlos Allende. Got it. And I think they try to contact to write to him, but get no answer. Meanwhile, the Navy does something very. The, does something very odd, which is that they contract with a company in Texas, the Varro Manufacturing Company, to produce a mimeographed copy of this text with Jessup's original words in black and the annotations in red, which, remember, we're back in 1957. This is a tremendously involved and time-consuming project, and we may well wonder why the Office of Naval Research thought it was worth doing this. Uh, and we can perhaps come back to that question. I do, not, I, I, I do not wish to slow the narrative. But in any case, they do produce this. In 1958, the chairman of the Varro Manufacturing Company sends a copy of the mimeograph text to Allende at the New Kensington address. Jessup also gets a few copies. And in 1959, Jessup drives his car into the Matheson Hammock Park in Coral Gables, Florida, runs a tube from the exhaust pipe into the car, turns on the ignition, and is dead within an hour or two. And thus Jessup leaves the scene. Act three, enter Gray Barker. Barker and Jessup were, were close correspondents from the November of 1954, which is really more than, more than somewhat over a year before Allende began writing to Jessup, down until January 1957, when for some reason, it's not at all clear, from the correspondence, when for some reason they broke off, apparently without any without any quarrelling. Their their final letters are perfectly amicable, and I don't know why they stopped exchanging letters. Jessup never mentioned anything about Allende's letter to Barker, which is very strange, and I I don't know why he concealed it. Uh. In any case, Parker really didn't know any of this stuff until 1962, when a lot of it was published in a publication by an occultist group in California, which Jessup had connections with. And Barker became fascinated with it. Remember, by now Jessup is dead, so Barker can't quiz him on this. So he sets out to locate this Varro edition, the mimeographed edition, and also to locate Carlos Allende or Carl Allen, where there are a few clues like the New Kensington address. And he manages, I, I won't go into the details here because I think we have to move a bit swiftly, but uh, he manages to get hold of a copy of the Varro edition and republishes it in 1973, which is how somebody like me gets to have it on his bookshelves. Uh, 
Uh, and in 1977, his pal Jim Mosley manages to track Allende down in, I think it's uh, Arizona. And he visits Allende, and Allende shows him a number of things. One of them is how he managed to fake three different handwritings because he was the three gypsies were all Allende. And uh, he talks about physics. He does not impress Mosley. Mosley says the man doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground about physics, but uh, he knows enough jargon to impress the unwary. And presumably on Barker's dime, they fly him to West Virginia, where Mosley and Barker interview him and produce a recording called Carlos Allende Speaks. During my visit to the Barker collection in 2004, I listened to this. It is a very strange uh, work. Uh, Mosley and Barker are theoretically co-interviewers, but Mosley never says anything, whereas Barker keeps apologizing for something. It's not clear what. Uh, it all becomes intelligible when you see the correspondence between Allende and, uh, and Barker afterwards that Mosley and Barker were both thoroughly drunk at the time of the interview. They had completely stopped taking Allende seriously. Allende speaks, starts out in Spanish. He, he speaks with a heavy, a heavy Spanish accent. Uh, I myself, if I hadn't known he was Pennsylvania born and bred, um, I would not have imagined he was a native English speaker. And he says nothing of any interest. I, I think um, I'll be able to put a clip of that interview. I think I could snag a little bit of it just to give a flavor of, of uh, Allende's uh, voice. Since 3 July ago, about 25 months ago, during the Soyuz Apollo uh, mission, when an invisible star was found radiating in the 390 angstrom region of the ultraviolet and having such strong force field uh, condenses, the density, that it proved my own statements of the past quarter of a century or more that invisibility can be achieved by using force fields and knowledge from Einstein's second, repeat, second unified field theory, as well as force fields and unified and ultraviolet uh, light. My statement that this can be done, invisibility achieved through UV light and force fields, is proven to be true by the discovery of that star. But I've been so perplexed. It, he's Carl Allen of Pennsylvania, but he's also Carlos Allende. Do we know? I mean, is I assume that's all affectation. And he just stays in character the whole time. I mean, one of his letters to some uh, physicist, he, the man wrote, uh, OK, when, uh, in my naivete in the 1960s, I assumed he was an elusive mystery man, which perhaps he was until about 1977. And then, I mean, Barker can't, 
Parker can't get rid of him. I mean, he still uses bar. You know, the, uh, when I was planning my trip to the Barker collection, David Houchin said, oh, there's lots of letters from somebody named Carl Allen. Wow. That's <laughs> like, uh, you know, from the Apostle Paul, you know, the collection of letters and your files full of these things. And they drive you crazy. Look at reading them. That uh, that the, the man, <laughs> the man was just craving attention, and mm. uh, Barker, Barker had started taking and to be taken seriously, and that that was what Barker couldn't give him because to Barker, he was a joke, and possibly a cash cow. Mm-hmm. Barker wrote an awful book called The Strange Case of Dr. M.K. Jessup. When you turn the pages, the sound you hear is the bottom of the barrel being scraped. <laughs> I mean, Parker, I, I, I think he probably wanted to write a sequel to They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, but he could never come up with anything like that with, of comparable power. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Well, thanks particularly, particularly from 1980 onward, where ufologist Robert Gurman, G-O-E-R-M-A-N, I'm not quite sure how he pronounces it, but that he realized that he he grew up in New Kensington he was a neighbor of the Allens. He knew the family. And he tracked down all sorts of things about Carl Allen. We know the man pretty exhaustively now. That he was a brilliant boy who hated school. Uh, he dropped out after the ninth grade, joined the Merchant Marine, and from October 1943 onward, note the dates, that was when he claimed that the invisibility experiment had taken place. He was a, he was serving on a series of ships. One of them was the SS Andrew Furoseth, from which he claimed that he had witnessed the disappearance of the ship. Meanwhile, the story was beginning to spread. In the 1960s, it was esoteric teaching, known only to a few geeky teenagers such as myself. 
Uh, by the late 70s, William Moore had gotten wind of it, figured there was money here, uh, interviewed Allende, and wrote a book which I don't think ever made it to the New York Times bestseller list, but as I've said, brought in enough of the money to to to, to enable him to, to quit the classroom. And the story spread. It became in 1984 what one friend of mine called a good grade B movie, <laughs> The Philadelphia Experiment, <laughs> which uh, bears only the smallest resemblance to the book by Berlitz and Moore, which is never, by the way, even mentioned in the credits. Uh, the, 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 uh, at some point, Allende identified the disappearing ship as the SS Eldridge, uh, which was sent to Greece, I think, in 1951, renamed the Leon, and children, Greek children were given tours of the ship with historical explanations, including that it had been rendered invisible in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you get some idea of how the legend has spread, at least several years ago, which was the last time I checked. It was getting upwards of 60,000 uh, Google searches each month. Given the name of the ship being the Eldritch and the way Allende horrifically describes everything that happens, it feels so strangely Lovecraftian. Uh, I mean, it feels like the kind of language of Lovecraft tied into a pure sort of sci-fi with also the whole thing's wrapped up with this strange tinge of madness. I mean, it, it is it is so peculiar. It's such a peculiar story. I The backstory is so much more interesting than this little snippet that becomes the movie. It's It's so, so weird. Yeah, that everyone else knows about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really. You, I, I mean, uh, you you suggested in, in an email that uh, you wish there would be a movie made about it, and I do too. No, it would be. Why don't a, we yeah, write yeah. this? Yeah, let's write the screenplay. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the this is the most extraordinary story, and I because I think there yeah, is there is a profound truth in this that Allende was an invisible man. He didn't have to be. He fantasized himself as a great scientific genius who had taken physics lessons from Einstein. Uh, but that, that was like about 75% nonsense and 25% reality that he was a genius. He could have been a great scientist, just as Jessup would have been. A- or, or a representative, apparently. That's a... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, yeah that, so strange. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he's well, I mean, and Jessup, Jessup was incredibly bright. I guess, I guess one of the things, and then, and Barker's no slouch. I, I, I think all three of these gentlemen, um, they remind me of, um, there's this concept of the outsider. Colin Wilson wrote a, a, a book about the concept of the outsider as a, a, a creator uh, and I feel like all three of these guys are outsiders. I mean, Gray, um, he's invested in ufology, but he mocks ufology. He, yeah. he, yeah, he looks for the truth, but he makes his own hoaxes. 
Uh, Morris K. Yeah. Jessup is like he's from he starts out in the institution and rejects the institution. And then Carl Allen seems to be uh, he he wants fame and fortune, but apparently he's not willing to do the sort of rigorous work necessary to achieve those goals. Mm. So instead, he confabulates. I, I they, they are all three mm-hmm. outsiders. Yeah. And, and maybe all of them are sort of in a way failures. But yet at the same time, they've created this incredible narrative <laughs> that survives them and the narrative's not even right. close to being as interesting as their own biographies. I, I just, yeah. it's, it's yeah. astonishing. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, it is completely fantastic. This is the real fantastic story. I, I, I don't think, I mean, I, I, I can't say that I've gone, that, that I've read every single word of the Allen correspondence. I mean, you know, we, uh, I would have had to spend a month at, in the library to do that. But but uh, I don't think he makes any explicit reference to blacks in American society. Yet he has the uh, delusion that he has sickle cell anemia, which suggests to me that at some level he identifies with the blacks who are for a long time were, and I think still are, the invisible man in American society. It's possible to say, I mean, the most haunting phrase from that, the, 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 his whole gruesome story of the invisibility experiment is the experiment was a complete success. The men were complete failures. Now say that about mm-hmm. post-war, take that as a parable of post-war American society. The, uh, the, 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 the experiment was a complete success, yet how many of its citizens were cast aside as invisible refuse, the kind of people you see sleeping on the grates to keep warm in New York City, and you step over them on your way to your favorite restaurant. Yeah. I think Alan spoke for these people. We could keep on exploring this endlessly. So, uh, I don't know how much more time we have. We know how Jessup ends, sadly. Uh, maybe talk about the other two is a good sort of way to wind it down. You know, well, Barker had just an incredibly sad life. He was uh, a gay man in 1950s West Virginia, which shows the extent to which he was obliged to conceal and which is i think the matrix from which the three men in black come the one the, the terrible truth that cannot be revealed he died of aids in 1984 uh in that article that i sent you from the revealer i spoke of alan as having died in poverty and misery i was completely wrong Several years ago, a woman writing pseudonymously under the name of Phyllis Dowers wrote a reminiscence of Carl Allen, Carlos Allende. I I think she mostly calls him just Carlos. And he lives a quite comfortable life in a nursing home in Greeley, Colorado. Uh, I think probably supported by his brothers. Here in Denver. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. For for the first time in decades, he's well-fed. He cannot control himself in the presence of mashed potatoes. 
Uh, I know that he, feeling. <laughs> he is in his early 60s but looks much older. But he is so charming that Phyllis Dowers says he would melt the rivets off a female's jeans. A human interest article about him describes how he winks at college girls, flirts with beautiful women. Everybody seems to know the friendly, disheveled, outgoing old man. And insofar as... Did he continue to write? Uh, no, no, yeah, I don't think, I think the impetus went out. He, he spent his time, I mean, uh, th- th- that he was a happy Carlos Allende and a diminished Carlos Allende. He was no longer the great myth maker. He, he just enjoyed putting people on, give, telling them tall tales. As he used to have bar stool conversations with invisible sailors, uh, a lady journalist oh, wow. who overheard one of these conversations used it the, as, as the basis for writing the Broadway hit Harvey. <laughs> Which are some of you, right? Not all of your <laughs> listeners may recognize that it's about a man whose uh, best friend is an invisible six foot tall rabbit. Well, we, we uh, actually have talked about the puka before as a, as a monster uh, and the, this sort of invisible folklore figure. And, uh, and he also describes how he learned physics in two weeks of whirlwind lessons with Albert Einstein. And he was a he was fun to be around, a real character. Well, that's another so, uh, it's a Jimmy Stewart tie in, too, because see, Jimmy Stewart played in the movie version of Harvey. And then, of course, Jimmy Stewart's wife is alleged to have smuggled the hand of a Yeti out of uh, Nepal, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so. Like Jimmy Stewart's just trying to get on our show so desperately. (laughs) (laughs) I need to do a quick insert here. It was clear to me when we were recording this that David was sharing one of Carlos Allende's creative biographical tales, and we weren't supposed to take it seriously. But because I'm such a fan of the movie version of Harvey, I did want to explain that a little more. Harvey was written by Mary Chase in 1944. She would go on to receive the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for that play the following year. In 1950, it was made into the movie starring Jimmy Stewart. Now, the thing was, Mary Chase did live in the Denver area, and eventually Carl Allen would also end up in the Denver area, and it's entirely possible that he really did sit on bars and talk to himself. It would not in any way be the weirdest thing he did, by a long shot. But Alan slash Allende spent his whole life grasping for stolen glory, associating himself with important, albeit fictional, government secrets, and alleging friendships with famous personages such as Albert Einstein. But we know that Mary Chase was from an Irish background and loved to hear stories of Irish folklore from her family, and she worked hard on this play, spending two years in revisions before getting it finished up and produced. It then went on to become a huge success, and it became the 35th longest-running show on Broadway. According to Wikipedia, she was the first citizen of Colorado to win that prize, and at a time when only three other women had ever received it. And I loved how David told us the Allen slash Allende version of things, but I did want to insert this little historical note, because her play would go on to make the Irish folklore creature called the Puka, Hollywood famous. And that's a big deal for a little rural Irish monster trying to make it in this new world. If you've never seen Harvey, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's been a few years since I last watched it. 
but I have such fond memories of seeing it on the family television set and being entranced with Jimmy Stewart's bumbling, good-hearted portrayal of a man who doesn't quite fit into this world, but found companionship with a giant, invisible rabbit. Do we know if he was continuing to use this this Spanish language sort of uh, persona even in his dotage? Is that like did he continue to be Allende instead of Alan for the rest of his life? Is this something he took on like Madonna when she speaks with a fake British accent in England? He died. <laughs> he died on March fifth, nineteen ninety four. The obituary in the Greeley Tribune gave his name as Carlos Allende. That's really committing to the part. That is Yeah. <laughs> yes, to the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, David, uh just for our listeners, where can they find your writings and, and your your stuff? Uh I have a website, uh so David and I I have a blog on it. And several years back, I had a whole series in the blog about the Philadelphia experiment. Of course, there's my book, Intimate Alien, The Hidden Story of the UFO, that was published by Stanford University Press in, in 2020. And yes. also, also, if you could perhaps uh, put in the notes to this show the link that I gave you to the Revealer article that I wrote. Yes, absolutely. About the Philadelphia experiment. Yep. I think that's really as good a, uh, a, a, a brief sketch of the experiment and its legend that as, as one could Fantastic. find. I feel like I, this entire episode has been an, a fascinating meditation on, on, on how these people who, again, some people might see as losers – uh, and outsiders, like they've managed to create something that has become bigger than them, that has survived longer than them, that has more name recognition than they do, you know. And so they were all within their lifetime seeking something, you know, whether it was fame or clout or status or something. And they never quite got it within their lifetime. Yet after their lifetime, these remnants, these skeletal remnants have developed into something much larger. Do you have any sort of closing thoughts on that? Well, I think if I point my finger at you and say, you loser, three fingers point back at me. We're all losers, aren't we? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. (laughs) In the end, we lose what we most strain to keep. And these are people who, by carrying what's true of all of us to extremes help us recognize what's inside all of us. the real story of the Philadelphia experiment. This is a, such a beautiful and poignant story. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Interesting insight into the human condition. I'm delighted and honored. And it was just, it was just a pleasure talking to you both. Thanks so much. Thank you for your time. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with David Halpern about the strange true story behind the strange false legend 
of the Philadelphia Experiment. Be sure to check the show notes for links to David's online work and books. I just find this story so strange and unlikely. Not the made-up wonders, but the real people whose desire for fame and clout drove them to such curious ends. And this story has sprawl. In addition to a 1984 motion picture, there have been sequels, plus several books focusing on this narrative, including the 1980 edition by William Moore and Charles Berlitz that made the phrase Philadelphia Experiment so famous. But there's also one more really strange thread woven into the tapestry that we've not talked about yet, and it is a doozy. So we'll be coming back to that later sometime this year, because it will tie this story directly to the popular TV series Stranger Things, as well as to a certain famous internet cryptid. So stay tuned for that. But next week, we'll be hopping over to another classic American monster that somehow we've never discussed deeply on the show before, and we'll be having a return guest to boot. So come back next week and hear Dr. Joe Nickel discussing another monster that he thinks he may have found a natural explanation for. Stay tuned. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network home of such shows as Good Job Brain I Know What Scares You and I Know What Scares You If you'd like to advertise on this show contact sales at advertisecast.com We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk Each episode we strive to bring you the very best in monster related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation If you enjoy Monster Talk we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. You could be listening to anything right now, but you're listening to our humble podcast, and for that, we thank you. A Monster House presentation. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
my guy. You're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.